Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. I spend, I've spent most of my adult life in and out of coffee shops. I don't know about you guys, but I, I spent a lot of time in coffee shops. I've worked um, from them for years and years. And you'll find um, there aren't a lot of different things that happen in coffee shops. There's like six things that happen in coffee shops. Strobe lights. That's nice. I don't think that's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> um, in coffee shops, you either have, you know, People talking about Jesus. That's actually a good percentage of what's happening in coffee shops. Um, I see all my friends around town, pastors and young life leaders, intervarsity people, crew people. We're all hanging out in coffee shops. Kind of, there's an informal network. We all hang out in different coffee shops. If I want to see uh, my buddy Martin, I go to Caffeina because I know he's going to be there. That's that's his spot. Um, but I, there's there's another group of people that show up in coffee shops very regularly, and it tends to be at break time and in the evening. And uh, it, it's always the multi-level marketers. This is, this is, their, this is their homeland. Um, you know, I'll be sitting in a coffee shop, and I'll, I've, I've heard every pitch for every MLM over and over again. Uh, by the way, I heard, heard a great line. Mormons call multi-level marketing MLMs Mormons losing money. I just think it's like a, just a, a great. <laughs> uh, but you're sitting in a coffee shop, you hear the sales, the sales process start, and, and uh, I've heard hundreds of them. And, and a few times I've, been re- I've had a, a, an acquaintance reach out to me and they want to grab coffee. And then halfway into the, I'm trying to connect with them and they start pitching me on Amway or something. So I've, I've sat through a lot of these. And most times you start with like four or five like real clear false dichotomies. Like, have you ever noticed that wealthy people don't work nine to five jobs like other people? <laughs> you know, they, they start with something like that. And then they're like, do you think that rich people take the same path that you and I take? And they talk about how the economy goes through cycles, but their business, it's steady. It's always going up. And then they tell them, there's always this line, I'm on pace to quit my regular job by the end of the year. I've heard that, I've heard that line 300 times at least. Um, and then they pivot and they start talking about how much money you can make. And lastly, if the person asks 20 or 30 questions, they're likely to finally find out that the way that you make money, the actual business, is by marking up household items that you sell through an online portal. Like, it's like you, you have to work through all of the, the, the rigmarole to get to, okay, what is this thing you're selling? I have no idea what you're, what you're doing. And all along the way, I kind of have this internal dialogue in my head. I'm watching something that I know is probably not good for this person. Like I'm watching something unfold that's like regrettable and I, I'm hoping that the mark doesn't take the bait because I've seen it happen over and over and over again. People, they spend money and time and energy trying to build out a business that's built to bilk them of their money rather than create opportunity for them, although they're called opportunities. And I sit there and I go, should I step in? And like, because inevitably the person who's doing the sales pitch like leaves 
a little bit before the other person because they're like trying to make a strong exit. And I, I, wanna, I wanna just step in and like tell them the hundreds of people I've seen in these opportunities and that none of them have made money doing it. You know, like you just wanna step in and save them from it. And I start to imagine in my mind, I'm, I make up this little story about how they're gonna take their food and they're gonna spend on their credit card so they can join this business opportunity. And for the kid's sake, for the kid's sake, I've gotta step in. I've gotta save them from what they're going through, this, this choice that they're gonna make. It's for the children. I need to step in and, and give them a prophetic word of warning in this situation. Do you ever do that? Do you ever make up an excuse in your head why it should matter to you so that you can step in and save somebody from themselves or their decisions? You have to like create some context that makes it make sense for you to dive in with a, a strong word of rebuke or warning. Sometimes it'll look like maybe somebody in your family they're making a bad decision, and you work back how eventually it could affect you so that then you have the right to tell your family member how they're being dumb. You guys don't do that, right? Like, you don't, you don't do that in your head. Uh, maybe, maybe it's uh, something at work where you take offense for somebody else because you don't want to create a culture like that in your business, and so you need to deal with what this other person did that's not connected to you. So often, we're, we're looking for opportunities to step in and to take control. And I think that this impulse is, it's, it's natural to us as humans, but it's, it's about two things. It's, it's a false sense of self-importance, like constantly we're thinking of ourselves as vital to save the world around us. And part of that's buffeting up our, our ego to feel like we're important. And part of it is we like that position of thinking of ourselves that way. And the second is we have this desire to impose our vision of how the world should be healthy and flourishing. And so we look around for ways to get our values on other people so that my world is better. You guys don't do that, do you? I think so often it's easy for us to project onto the world what it ought to be rather than asking what we should be. People do this in church a lot. If you're in a community for a while and then at some point you're gonna get disillusioned with me and our church, like you're gonna be unhappy. There's gonna be something I'm gonna do, there's gonna be something somebody else is gonna do. And uh, something that didn't bother you in the beginning is gonna start bothering you. And, and maybe you've been listening to a podcast and a preacher with a different perspective and, and now you need me to believe the same thing and teach the same thing as that podcast pastor that you listen to. Or maybe your view on like some theological, political or social problems shifts and now you don't feel as comfortable as you once felt. And so those same impulses that you have to try to talk yourself into confronting people in the world and in our community to make them deal with what you think that they should do, you bring to the church and we look around and try to say, okay, I'm gonna teach you what I want you to be so that my world is better by me controlling who you are and how you live. Maybe you see somebody struggling in life, somebody who has problems somebody who is struggling with addiction, has relationship issues, every time you see them, they're in crisis. And you think, well, they must not know how to do life well because they're struggling. And so what do you do? You, you think, well, they need the unsolicited advice from me to solve their problems. I'm the solution to what they need. And some of us only do this in our heads, but some of you, others of you, say things to everyone you see. You look around you and you see a broken world and you think, well, God has anointed me, the problem solver. 
When do we take that role of prophet? When do we take that role of pastor? When do we just stay out of other people's business? Do you guys feel, if you don't feel that internal battle, that means you're, you probably are too much of a prophet, okay? If you don't feel any battle around when and if you should step in, it means that you probably need to pull back a little bit. We all feel this anxiety about what we should say, what we should confront. We feel the brokenness of the world around us, and we're trying to figure out what is my responsibility? When do I step in? And if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that's indisputable. Somewhere along the way, we started to believe that Jesus is only the truth. And some of you look around the world and see a world full of lies, and you think, I have to speak truth to everyone I see, making sure that they know what's right and what's wrong. A lot of people feel compelled to share their opinion as that truth, as that fact. But very few feel that same feeling that they need to share their kindness, not just their truth, which I think is a tragedy in our world. Today, I want to dive into kindness because kindness is the way of Jesus. And in our culture, we've made this false dichotomy between truth and kindness, between doing what is right and being kind, seeing kindness as a lie rather than as a part of God's nature. Uh, it's, for some reason in our culture, it's become more loving to be a truth-telling jerk than to be a kind person in someone's life. But I don't think that those are the only two things to consider when it comes to how do we engage in the world around us. What if kindness is not an optional part of your life, but it's an essential part of the nature of God? What if telling the truth, if it makes you feel superior, if it makes you feel safe, if it makes you feel relieved, then it may not be truth at all. It's just your emotional need to project on others your values. Here is what I want to get at today. Kindness itself is an ultimate good. Kindness is part of the very nature of God that we see in the life of Jesus. It's not something that you can abandon if you want to please God or walk in the way of Jesus. And I mean that in the kindest way, I promise. This is not meant to be a challenge to you all, but an invitation to say, how do we embrace kindness as a part of who God is? Let's start with one place that we cannot deny. Galatians chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, is where we're at today. Galatians chapter 5. The writer of Galatians is writing a letter to a church, letting them know this is what it's like to walk in God's spirit. This is what it's like to experience the spirit's power. And in verse 22, after saying that there's all these things that you can do that have nothing to do with God, like sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissent, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, anyone living with that sort of thing does not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the things that don't look like the kingdom, but, verse 22, the Holy Spirit, his fruit, the product of his presence is this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I would argue that all of those fruit of the Spirit are a part of kindness. All of them are about someone experiencing your loving care for them. And if that is what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit inside of us, then unkindness means that we're not walking with God. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're not walking in the way of Jesus. Kindness is an essential part of God's calling to us as his people. So let's let, as we've been talking about, the imago of God's, God's very being, we're trying to image him. We're trying to look like Jesus. That means if we want to look like him, if we want to sound like him, if we want to act like him, if we want the world to be filled with God's presence and his spirit, that means we have to take hold of the very essence of his spirit's presence, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. I think kindness is one that gets left behind along the way. Because when you look around, people are a mess. Have you seen this world? Do you see the messes that people are making out of their own lives? Do you see the idiots on the road as you're driving around town? Do you see all those people on social media either refusing or embracing vaccinations, however you feel about them? Do you see the foolishness in our schools, the evil in our lives? If you don't deal with this mess, who is going to step in? And as I'm telling you those things, some of you have like anger and frustration welling up inside of you right now. This need to impose on the world what we want it to be. But we only see in the life of Jesus a few moments at all where we see harshness. And it's read into the text. It's not something that we see there, but something that we want to add to it. Because the disciples, when they gave us the Gospels, were trying to give us a picture of who Jesus was. And apparently Jesus was not a jerk. I don't know if you realize that, okay? You can, like, the Jesus film and, like, you know, The Chosen and all these shows. I, like, they, they treat Jesus in ways that I think are probably, like, nonsense. But, but the one thing they don't get, for the most part, wrong is that Jesus is deeply kind. When Jesus enters into a situation, people are drawn to him because of his care for them. Jesus doesn't look like a big jerk. He doesn't look like those talking heads on the news channels. He doesn't look like the way I look like when I am yelling at my kids. That's not the way Jesus was. He was different than us. And the question we have to ask theologically is that is that that's true of Jesus true of the Father as well? Is it true of God? And the answer is equivocally yes. Everything you see in Jesus is an exact representation of the Father's nature and character. And so we have to look back at the Old Testament and say, okay, let's, let's check this thing out. Is this true? We're going to be kind of all over the place, so you don't need to look these up as we go. But I want, I want to take you through a, a quick survey of the Old Testament and some of the places where we see the nature of God show up. First off, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 7 and 8, it says this, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a burst of anger I turned my face away for a little while. That's the prophet talking about him, himself turning away from God. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Like that's the nature of God is to have compassion on us. Even, even when he turns away in his frustration with us, he always comes back. Isaiah 63 says, I will tell of the Lord's unfailing love. I will praise the Lord for all that he has done. I will rejoice in his great goodness to Israel which he has granted according to his mercy and love. 
This is the very nature of God the Father and God the Creator. He is always full of compassionate mercy and love. We see in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, they refused to obey and did not remember the miracles that you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. And then we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament is chock full of verses talking about God's love towards us. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. God, in his kindness and love, generously poured out the Spirit. This is your Father, your God. He loves you. He's kind to you. He's compassionate towards you. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated with us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us. He can point to you and all future generations as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done to us who are united with Christ Jesus. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's saying this is, if you want to be like your father, this is what it's going to look like. So what is kindness? What is God's kindness? What should our kindness look like? It looks like this overflowing grace and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in love. When you look at the God of the Old Testament, what do we find? We find that even when he was angry, what did he do? He waited hundreds and hundreds of years to bring justice because he wanted his people to turn towards him. Even when his children were being hurt and suffering. He waited. He waited and waited and waited and in his loving kindness allowed for his people to be drawn back to him. And today I want to jump into John chapter 4. Is a little space I want to spend some time. And this is um, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well and it's a very familiar story but I want to focus in on how does Jesus enter into a situation with somebody who is a mess, okay? The woman at the well, her life is not going well. She has, as you'll see in the story, she's, she is not doing well. And Jesus, the way that he enters into the situation, I want us to grab hold of that and look at it and say, okay, how do we do that same thing? So John chapter four, verse four. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Jesus did to Galilee, because that's the way you go. And eventually he came to a Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, he was tired from the long walk, and he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Now, 
this is, we, you've probably heard a lot about this situation. Obviously, she's by herself in the middle of the day getting water. She was there to avoid people. And Jesus is just sitting there waiting for his disciples. He's tired from this long journey. He's had a lot of, um, a lot of things have happened already in John. And he's sitting there waiting for his disciples to get back to hopefully get some food and some water. And Jesus sees this woman and he has the care and compassion to engage with her. It would have been completely acceptable and not rude at all for him to ignore her completely. Especially as a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman of ill repute. It would have been expected that Jesus, like I do, politely give a half smile, the American half smile, the and then put my head down, put his head down, and rest. Just completely ignore her. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus sees her. He sees her. He acknowledges her, and he enters in with a question, please give me a drink. I like two things about that sentence. Number one, he said, please. Like, he, he didn't say, give me a drink, woman. He didn't say, he didn't manipulate her and say, I'm thirsty. It's been a long journey. I'm tired. Would you get me a drink? He said, please, because he wanted to give her dignity. Even though she didn't deserve the dignity that he gave her in their cultural milieu, he entered in with a please. And then he gives her his vulnerability. Jesus himself was in need. He is entering in and allowing this woman to care for him, to give her a position of power over him because she had what he needed. And when we enter into the world around us, too often we're coming in with strong views of ourself, wondering what we have to offer the world, wondering how we can take our good values, wondering how we can take our wealth and our position and our authority and impose it on others. But the God of the universe, when he enters into these situations, he doesn't enter in with authority and power. What does he do? He enters in with weakness and with vulnerability. This is a part of the kindness of God is that God submits himself to a relationship with us. God submits himself to be, he, is, he has to deal with our choice in our relationship with him. God himself isn't under our authority, but he chooses to take on the very nature of humanity to come join us on earth and then be subject to our choice to respond to his loving kindness. Think about that. That's the way that Jesus enters in. So how do we enter in? We enter in with arrogance and we enter in with pride and we enter in trying to protect ourselves and trying to make sure that the world bends its will to my way. But the God of the universe doesn't do that. So maybe we should look at what Jesus does and say, okay, there's a disconnect between what he does and what I do. Therefore, I should change. Verse 8, he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. I imagine that this situation would look really different if Jesus rolled in deep with his posse. I imagine she would have been less engaged with Jesus. But he made space for her by sending them off. Jesus knew what was happening. He saw the situation and he entered in by making himself vulnerable. Because when we roll deep with our posse, when we have our friends with us, what does it do to the people around us? It makes them make room for us. 
But instead, Jesus makes room for this woman, gives space for her. And the woman's surprised by his kindness. Because he was kind, because he, um, she was a Samaritan woman that was obviously there on her own. She was completely, even though it was her town, Jesus as a Jew, Jewish leader rolling through, had all the power. And his kindness surprises her. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd probably ask me and I'd give you living water. Jesus is saying that even though I'm asking you for this act of kindness to me, that this gift of God that I have to gift it, that I have to give you is an act of incredible kindness. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, which are really necessary when you're talking about an open water well. And she said, this well is very deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus said, anyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Get down to the meat of the situation. She doesn't want to have to go to the well to get water. She doesn't want to deal with the shame of being around other people. She doesn't want to go in the middle of the day to avoid people because it's hot. She doesn't want to have to show up to this, this dehumanizing experience that she has to do day in and day out. She doesn't have kids and family to help her with this chore. Every time she shows up, she feels the shame of her position in the world. She feels alone. She wants what he has because he entered in. If Jesus smiles politely and closes his eyes and rests there, nothing happens. But Jesus enters in, and he doesn't enter in with a, hey, you over there. I know you have had five husbands, and you're sleeping with that other guy. You're obviously a mess. Come over here. I'm going to teach you some stuff and give you the stuff you're looking for. It's not the way Jesus enters in. Too often, that's the way we enter in, where we, we demand that people come to us and experience what we want them to experience. And instead, Jesus enters in with curiosity. He listens, even though he knows. He creates space for her. And then Jesus says, go get your husband. Which is like, it's a little provocative. Like, he's obviously trying to elicit something in her. But it doesn't come across as an accusation. She doesn't know that he knows. And so when he asks, it's a, I, I, think, I think Jesus, she felt like she needed to care for Jesus putting his foot in his mouth in this situation. Like Jesus feigned ignorance of what was happening by asking a question and allowed her to care for him. Do you see that? He says, hey, go get your husband, which would have been really offensive in the ancient world if you don't have a husband because it uncovers her shame. It uncovers that she's in need and that she doesn't have what she needs. She says, I don't have a husband. 
And Jesus said, well, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And I love that Jesus brings her there with a question rather than an accusation. He lets her come to him by asking questions. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem's the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? You see what happened there? That was a juke. <laughs> Jesus got in. He opened things up with kindness and relationship and a question. And then where does she want to go? Same place a lot of you go when you feel uncomfortable. Politics. <laughs> like she, she was like, hey, hey, I know. Yeah, it's cool, cool, cool about the whole, I, I like the living water thing. <clears throat> you must be a prophet. I've always had this question. And then she wants to get down to, okay, is it Jerusalem or is it Mount Gerizim? Is it the Jews or is it the Samaritans? Which one's the real deal? Now, Jesus, even though he doesn't reveal it here, he has a political side to this. Jesus knows that the temple is in Jerusalem. He knows that that's the one that God has set aside, and he knows that's where some of his greatest work is going to happen. But instead, instead of getting into the politics with her and diving into that question, he pivots. Jesus says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it won't matter where you worship the Father on this mountain or on Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship, while we Jews know all about him. I just, I love that line. Like, you don't, you don't understand what's going on. We do, but that's not the problem. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's right now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and and in truth. He sidesteps the politics to keep her engaged with the real thing. And too often in our world, the people around you want to talk about politics because politics is removed from their identity. Even though it's such a strong part of how they see themselves, it's out there. We can talk about those things out there because those aren't a threat to you really knowing me. Those things out there, the, the Democrats and the Republicans and the all of that nonsense about COVID that consumes all of our conversations, it's easy to go to because it's just analysis. It's my brain analyzing what's happening and telling you what I think about something. And that's easy to talk about because that's not really me. That's just this little computer in my head spitting out information. But what does Jesus do? He goes at the heart of it. He enters in with her and he invites her to engage with him by sidestepping it and saying, hey, don't worry about the whole temple thing. That's going away. There's this new thing happening. It's happening right in front of you. This living water is right here. And the woman said, well, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. She got what he was saying when he said, it's here now. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus says, you're in luck, sister. It's me. I am the Messiah. And just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? I, I love this part of the story because like his disciples were scandalized. They were all looking at it going, Jesus, you, you know that she's not the kind of woman you want to talk to. She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. 
and she's here for a reason. And they're looking at it going, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Why are you talking to her? And in their heads, they can't say it aloud, but they're all feeling it. And the woman left her water beside the well. And she ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. The kindness of Jesus, his loving kindness shows up in a really complex situation here where a woman doesn't come away filled with shame, but she comes away hoping that the kindness of God can bring life to her. So much so that she's willing to run back and tell her whole village, hey, this guy knows all of my junk and he still wants me to know him. This guy might be the real thing. He might be the Messiah that we've been looking for. And even in confrontation, even in this really awkward situation, you don't see Jesus trying to elicit shame from her. But shame is our emotional crutch. We use it and we project shame on others. We use our own shame to protect ourselves. Shame is the tool of this world to, to disconnect us from God and from each other. We are guilty because we have trespassed against God's law, but shame comes from the enemy of God heaping condemnation on us. But when God himself enters in, he doesn't bring condemnation. What does he bring? He brings healing. He brings a river of life flowing out of you. He covers up your shame with his weakness. Do you see how Jesus does that? By entering in the way he did, he allowed her to connect with him. He didn't allow her shame to keep her isolated because he entered in with kindness. And silly controversies like political posturing, engaging with them is, is a way for us to disconnect from a relationship rather than offering connection. And so the greatest thing you can do in the world right now is to pivot when your friends talk about politics. When your friends want to dive into something that they're really frustrated with, if you move towards them and ask them questions about what they're feeling and what's their fear and what's their concern and asking them a question like, have you known anybody who's struggling with COVID right now? Sharing a story of your loss. All of a sudden it transforms the equation from me versus you my idea of how to strategically deal with the political controversies of the day versus your way of dealing with the political controversies of the day. Instead, it helps me bridge that divide by seeing you, by looking in your eye and seeing your humanity and inviting you to see and experience me. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of kindness. Kindness is Jesus's default. It's the Father's default in conflict and in every day, in our sin and in our righteousness, the default reaction of God the Father and Jesus the Son is kindness towards us. We think that we can jettison kindness in conflict. We think that we can push aside conflict when we have positions of power and authority. We think that we can set aside kindness when the stakes are the highest, right? So often you see in our everyday conversation, that we think that it's okay to yell when we're saying something that's truthful or important. When in reality, that's the time where kindness speaks the loudest is when we're so hyped up and needing to project our way on someone else.
So often we hear people say, how can I be kind to them? In the transaction of our relationship, they're jerks. They're unkind. They're foolish. They're arrogant. They're mean to me. How can I be kind to them? And God's answer is, well, I was kind to you, and you were a jerk to me. God's answer is, even in your worst moment, I was kind to you. And even when you were a long ways off from me, and even when you were a ways off from turning to me, I was still kind to you, and I was still patient with you, and I was still long-suffering with you. Because kindness is always undeserved. It's not a transaction. Kindness always starts with somebody saying, I'm going to give you a gift of my presence and my care for you instead of demanding I get it from you before I give it to you. Because the arms race of kindness always starts with grace and open-handedness. We see in this story that kindness is a transformational force in our world. That when we lovingly enter in and care for the people around us, when they connect with us because of that kindness, they're, they're ushered into the community of the Father. They're literally experiencing God's love in your kindness. We see in our world, we, we have created a false dichotomy around kindness and truth or kindness and strength. You guys feel that tension? Like kind people, we think of them as um, weak. We think of them as milk toast. We think of them as they're kind because they're afraid. And you can't be powerful and you can't be authoritative and you can't be important if you're kind because kindness is weakness in our world. But what we see in this situation is that Jesus entered in with all sorts of strength. He entered in so deeply in his identity as the beloved son of the one true God and as of the Messiah himself. He knew who he was and he knew what he was doing. And so he didn't need her to parrot back to him his messiahship. He could offer to her his kindness rather than demanding kindness from her. He didn't require from her what she thought he had to give her. Because kindness itself is an act of strength. It's a gift that we give away rather than something that's taken from us. And so when, I, when you think of kindness, I want you to think of strength. And what you see in Jesus is that he has these incredibly healthy boundaries. And, I, you know, I think the idea of boundaries sometimes gets overused and clinicalized. But, like, the boundaries that you see in Jesus is he doesn't, he doesn't get enmeshed with this woman at the well in a way that he, um, when he enters into this conversation with her, her shame doesn't make him feel shame. Do you see that? When we're in the world and we see somebody else with shame, what do we feel? We feel shame for them, and so we alienate them. We're afraid that their shame is going to rub off on us. But the way Jesus enters in is when he enters into a person who's full of shame and condemnation, he covers up their shame with his presence. It goes all the way back to Genesis Chapter 2 and 3, when the fall happens, what does the Father do to his people? When they're covered in sin and shame, what does he do? He clothes them. When they feel shame about their nakedness, he covers them up with his 
with his cost. Like he, he literally like had to kill his creation and destroy his creation to cover up our sin. Those animals that are killed in Genesis 3 are an example of God's loving kindness to humanity. And so that's what we do. When we enter in with kindness, we cover up people's shame. We don't heap condemnation on people. We give them our loving presence. Now, I think that the, the real question that we should be asking is then, what does kindness look like when we have conflict? When someone around you is creating a mess of their world, in particular, they're sinning against you or they're sinning against people you're responsible for, whether that's uh, in your workplace or in your family or just someone out in the world, what do we do because the world is full of sin and brokenness and if nobody ever deals with it, what happens? Sin and brokenness reigns in our world and somebody has to confront the evil that's going on and God appoints people in special positions of power and authority to confront evil, including and specifically our government and some of our elected officials and some of, the, some of those we pay to protect and serve in our police forces. So how do we enter in to conflict with the kind of kindness that God demands of us as followers of Jesus. So go back to Galatians chapter six, verses one through three. It literally is right after that fruit of the spirit because Paul knew that he, he would have to answer this question. It says this, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, now that's probably all the time. <laughs> if you look around, there's probably other believers in your life who are part of your family or community who are overcome with sin. You who are godly. Now, what is he referencing when he says godly here? Those who are full of the Spirit. He's looking back two verses to the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control of the Spirit. Those of you who have those things should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Gently and humbly. Now, who here has experienced a lot of conflict that's full of gentleness and humility? When we have conflict, we get into our lizard brain and we puff up and we try to get big and we try to make other people feel like they should listen to us. We look at our kids and we get loud. We look at our family members and we confront them directly. But what we see in the Father and what we see in Jesus is that when they enter into conflict, it's with humility and gentleness. And that feels so out of place in conflict. When we, when we are experiencing the pain of someone else's sin, including, we're talking, I'm not talking little sins, I'm talking big sins, I'm talking about you talking behind my back. I'm talking about you having an affair with your spouse. I'm talking about you, like one of us has done something that's truly evil and we're taken over by sin. It feels like that's the time to yell, right? It feels like that's the time to get big and let people know that they're wrong. And here's what the Bible says, and I'm gonna show it to you right here. I'm gonna underline it. I'm gonna throw it at you and I'm going to make sure you know how wrong you are because you need to know the truth because the truth will set you free. But what we see is that the reason why we believe in God is because of his loving kindness to us. We are saved because he was patient and he waited for us. 
we receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from him so that we can embody the gifts that he's given us. And so when someone is in error, we should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. I didn't add that, that's right there. You're not that important. You're not that important. I think there's a few temptations we all have. One is to overcorrect, to dive in and yell and show someone how wrong they are. Another is to be too kind, so kind that we're not willing to confront their sin. And the third is, I think, the worst. And this is the one that I'm probably most likely to fall into, is that I don't care about you enough to even engage in it. I don't love you enough to connect with you and share with you the pain that you're causing me and other people enough to say what's true and lovingly care for you. I don't love you enough to confront you with love. There's a lot to learn here. I, I think that there's a lot to dive into. But I wanna, I wanna start with this is, you're not too important to dive in with other people. You're not too important, you're not too unimportant. You are the right amount of important <laughs> to enter in and to have healthy conflict. And as a community, we're pretty committed to healthy conflict. Um, I, don't, I don't think, apart from my social media, you would not think I'm a very contentious person. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think that as a community, what we're trying to do is have healthy, healthy conflict. And I want you to know, like, you're, you're free to speak and to tell me and to tell Bob and to tell each other when there's problems because it's not community until there's conflict. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people looking around, smiling at each other, okay? It's not community until you have conflict, and you choose to stick around in spite of the conflict. And you choose to stick around in spite of the way the other person deals with the conflict. That's what we do as a community as we enter in. And that's, if, you, if you're a part of Redemption Hill, we don't have like a formal membership process, but your, your relationship with us is a covenant where we say, Thick and thin, we're family. We're going to move through things in relationship. And so there's no one in this room that is above questioning. All of us are invited to speak truth in love and that this is a normal part of what we do as the people of God is to engage. But I think that there's, there's some uh, practices that will help us. Um, but before I get to practices, I want to say this. Anger like we said earlier, is a sign. It is a, it's a dashboard element that when it's flashing, anger is flashing, that means something's wrong. Something's wrong in you and something's wrong in somebody else. Anger is a symbol of that. And anytime you feel angry, that's a great time to stop what you're doing and to ask why, to figure out what's going on. Because whatever you do with your anger, if it's outwardly focused onto others, it's wrong. And what it does is it destroys your relationships and it destroys our community and it destroys the world. Your anger is a destructive force. And so what we have to do is constantly grab hold of it and see it as a symbol of our brokenness, 
bring it to God, and then have him invite us into the type of conflict that he wants, which is not an angry conflict, but one filled with humility and gentleness. We see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we see gentleness and humility, and we see empathy, where we're supposed to come alongside somebody else and help them. What do we do instead? We give ultimatums, right? Either you change or I'm gone. We go into a situation thinking, if they don't respond, then wash my hands, I'm out of here. I'm not responsible for them. But what we see in community is that you are responsible for one another to stay connected and to enter in and to help one another along in the journey. And what you'll find is that people will not transform at the pace that you want them to. You guys are not getting fixed fast enough for me, okay? I need you all to change faster. That's, how, that's why we feel so much conflict when we're with other people is because like there's brokenness and God's transforming us, but it's not happening at the pace we want it to because God has a plan that he's working out that takes time. And if, depending on what you read, I think it's gonna be like a forever kind of thing where we're gonna, we're gonna continue to grow in Christ-likeness beyond this life into the next world. So you might as well start right now. And as you're entering into that, I want to I challenge you that where transformation happens is grace plus time equals transformation. And so everybody around you that you are frustrated with it, where they're at right now, remember that's not where they're going to stay. And remember that your relationship plus time equals transformation. So continue to enter in. To not say either you get fixed or I'm out of here. Now, All that to say there are abusive relationships and there are people who are so committed to other people's destruction or to their own pleasure that they're not willing to enter in and they probably won't be and they will wreak a bunch of havoc in your life in the meantime. There are times where we have to say, I can't be close to you because you will not enter in. That's true. It's it's much more rare than people think. But there is a safety mechanism where if there's an abusive relationship, get out of there find some health, get some perspective, work through the differentiation of their emotion and your emotion, their shame and your shame, and then you'll be better able to help them from the outside. So here's the, here's the two, the two uh, practices that I think will help us in our kindness. The first is this. Jesus enters in with curiosity, and curiosity is kindness. Because when you enter in with curiosity, you're asking questions because you love and want to know the other person. And most of the time, the conflict will be avoided once you understand what's happening inside of somebody else. 25% of the people in this room and in our country have been abused or sexually assaulted. 25%. That means that there's a bunch of people in this room who are walking around with wounds that are deeper than you can imagine. And when we enter into conflict with them for something that they don't even have access to, a lot of times we're demanding that they get healed and get fixed and deal with this deep-seated problem that they don't even have access to. And so when you walk around the world, walk around with curiosity asking what's going on inside of you rather than saying what's wrong with outside of you. So when you enter into a relationship, you, you, you're seeing them saying, I gotta figure out what makes them tick. Because most of the time, once you do, your empathy will grow, your care for them will grow, your connection with them will, will grow, and it will help you help them grow. 
That's how it happens. So the first is curiosity. We listen. That's one of the best ways we can grow in kindness because when we love someone and know them, it's hard to hate them. And the second is this. Serve them before you confront them. If you're not willing to serve them, if you're not willing to give up something precious to you for them, you do not have the right to confront them. If you don't love them enough that you're doing it because of your care for them, you shouldn't confront them. And so find a way to lovingly serve them. Show them your care for them because then the confrontation is surrounded by the grace and presence of God. It's your kindness that is driving the confrontation rather than your demand for them to change. And I think that what you'll find is that when you start living out these practices of kindness is that you will experience God's love because you'll see it played out when you're connected with someone because of your kindness to them. And some of you, this is really hard. <laughs> There's some people in this room that don't like being kind. There's some of you who are still deeply selfish and um, you, you have been, you've been using truth as a way to avoid kindness. And that requires some repentance to see that kindness is an essential part of the nature of God and to say that I've been wrong and I need to embrace the kindness of the Father for the people around me. And for some of you, your kindness has lacked love. Your kindness has been weak. Your kindness has been for you so that people like you rather than people feel loved by you. Your kindness is built around your um, codependence with the people around you where you, you mirror them and you mimic their emotions towards you or you project your emotions that you want them to give you so that they will like you and they'll be connected to you. But in reality, it's still about you. And so our kindness needs to be this loving care for the people in the world around us. In general, I think you guys are all pretty kind, okay? So I'm not, this isn't like a prophetic word, but I wanna, I wanna get at that kindness is an essential part of the kingdom and that I, I love when people come here and they feel the kindness of God's presence because of you. And I think we need to continue that beyond just the nice, niceties of Sunday mornings and our shared life together and go beyond that into the kind of confrontation that brings transformation that we're looking for. I'm gonna invite the band to come up and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to meditate right now on, on your long suffering. How, how you have waited and been patient with us in our, in our brokenness. How this world and all of our history is an example of how much you have, you've loved us so much that your kindness has been palpable in your patience towards us. Lord God, as we as your people want to confess that so often we take these positions of arrogance and these positions of power so that we can feel safe and secure rather than love others. Lord God, so often we don't love people enough to engage with them or we don't love them enough so we beat them up with our demands on them. But Father, we want our lives to look like Jesus. We want everything about us to image the the one true God. And so God, we pray that we would become a kind people. 
that we would become a generous people and that your love and your joy and your peace and your patience and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness and your gentleness will reign in our hearts day in and day out. Lord God, when we have sin and when we have anger, bring it to our hearts so that we can confess it and invite your love to transform us. Lord God, all of those ways that we confront the world around us are many times the same demanding, angry attitude we have towards our flesh and towards ourselves. And God, we, we need your grace for ourselves too. We need to experience and accept your loving kindness. So Holy Father, make us into a people who look like you. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.